From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Thinking about the person who's cooking your food is the most important thing when writing a cookbook because I would never ask you to do something that I won't do myself. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. Last week, we wrapped up our four-part baking week and celebrated with a cookie swap in San Francisco with some of you, our listeners, at the Civic Kitchen. Our friends and cookbook authors Jessica Batalana and Cal Peternell joined us, too, to demo some of their favorite cookbook recipes. And now, here we are. We're back with our final full-length episode of 2018. And you just heard a bit from today's guest, Allison Roman. Now, if you've seen a picture in the last year or so of some small, chocolatey, sugar-rolled, salt-kissed cookies gracing your Instagram feed, well, chances are they were the cookie, a recipe from Allison's first cookbook, Dining In, that took social media by storm. Now, of course, there's much more to Allison's career than the cookie. She spent several years working in restaurants and bakeries, and then she jumped to food media, joining the team at Bon Appetit magazine and eventually serving as its senior food editor. Then came her first cookbook, Dining In, highly cookable recipes with 125 craveable and manageable dishes. The book took off and elevated Allison even more. She's now a contributor to the New York Times food section and working on a couple more cookbooks and much more. So let's head to our studio now at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Allison Roman joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Allison. How are you? Hi, I'm well. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Yes, thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you. So you, of course, are the author of Dining In, which is your first cookbook with like one asterisk that you also wrote Lemons for mm-hmm. Short Stack. And since then, been maybe like a little over a year since Dining In came out now? Yeah, a little bit over a year. Okay. And since then, now you're a contributor to the New York Times, continuing to contribute to lots of other places, mm-hmm. um, writing about food, working on other cookbooks, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yes. But let's go back a little bit before Dining In was published. Early on, you you always sort of knew you wanted to be a writer. Is that right? In college, you sort of were moving in that direction? Yeah, but definitely more in like a journal-y kind of way. Like okay. I had a lot of feelings to process. So <laughs> okay. I, I was not a... Didn't think that I was going to be a journalist or a novelist per se, but I did find that the best way for me to communicate myself and my feelings and my thoughts and to process everything was to write. And so I had always been a writer in that respect, for right. sure. And then there was also this component of food. When did food sort of come in? I know I know that there was a moment where you decided food was the path and you left college to pursue that. Mm-hmm. But was food an influence for you like very early on in life? Um, You know, I think it's hard to say because I, I don't know how other people grew up, but I felt like it was an average amount of food in my house. Okay. I grew up in LA and... You know, my mom was really into rice pilaf and steamed asparagus. You know, we cooked, I'd say, like five nights out of the week. There would be two nights where we would either order in or go out. But, you know, I I don't know if that's average or above average. And it wasn't like we had these big, long, winding meals. But having dinner every night was definitely important. And so was the act of cooking. Like, it was something that you came home from school you'd start dinner. It was like a thing that you, that I came to expect um, and appreciate, but it wasn't really until high school that I started cooking for myself. And it was definitely a way to procrastinate, to put off doing anything else. So to put yeah. off doing things like homework or chores or things of that nature, because 
you know, my parents would come home and they'd say, did you do your homework? And I'd say, no, but I made dinner. And <laughs> yeah. so it was kind of like, okay, thank you, but did you also work? still have to do your homework. <laughs> um, no. It, and that really set the tone for the rest of my life because I continue to cook in lieu of uh, any other responsibilities um, yeah. that I have to accomplish. And then you were in college and mm-hmm. decided to leave college to pursue food and to yes. go work in restaurants in particular. Yes. So I was dating this guy at the time who's a little bit older than I was and he was a creative like arty type and he got really into cooking through the French Laundry cookbook. And okay. so we would just like read the French Laundry cookbook on our on our time off, which is like hysterical for an 18-year-old to just like pour over the French Laundry cookbook <laughs> and be like we're going to make chicken stock for 8 hours today. And again, this was sort of before people were doing that regularly. And so it was an interesting hobby, but it became sort of this thing where we would seek out these cookbooks and go to restaurants and um, that we couldn't afford. And that was sort of how we spent our time and and money. And it became something that I realized after just cooking at home, even without following the recipes in the French Laundry Cookbook, obviously, um, was something that I really enjoyed. And it, it was something that I felt creatively stimulated by, but also emotionally stimulated by. Like it didn't seem like a, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't purely intellectual and it wasn't purely physical. It was creative and emotional and all these other things at the same time. And I feel like when you're cooking, you're engaging all of those things. I feel like it, it was one of the few times that I felt engaged on all those levels at one time. And so it's impossible to be bored, right? Yeah. So I think that I was like, oh, if I could just do this forever, I'll never be bored. Right. <laughs> Which is kind of true. <laughs> and then you you did for a while work in restaurants I and did. then decided to take a, a different approach a bit and pull in some more of the writing mm-hmm. and some of the writing chops. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, like we're skipping a, a lot here, <laughs> <Yada>. <laughs> ended in, not ended, culminated in dining mm-hmm. in and continues to culminate in that's all it, your other work. That's but- the end. No more. <laughs> That's all I got. Just scraping the surface. (laughs) One of the things that I've read about dining in, moving to the book specifically a little bit now, I read it actually in the end of the book, in the acknowledgments where you thank the team, the publishing team, for also liking the cover. (laughs) So I wanted to ask, like, was this, was this a divisive cover? Um, it was not divisive actually. And, okay. and to be honest, the only, like the person who was least sure about it was me. Um, everybody almost immediately loved it, but it was one of those things where it was sort of a, not a gamble, but we had a bunch of different options and the original concept we went in with was the image that ended up making it inside the book for the same recipe, which is the skillet chicken with crushed olives and sumac. And I was looking at it and I was like, it's beautiful, but it's really boring. And I feel like I just, it's like, did I really want to make another book that just had like an overhead plate of food on it? And yeah, it would have been gorgeous and people would have loved it, I'm sure. But I think that I would have known that I could have done better. And yeah. I think that the te- the creative team involved, um, our photographers and the prop stylist and our graphic designer and everyone, and even my editor, I think probably would have wished that we had done something a bit more bold. And so while this isn't revolutionary, especially not now, I feel like at the time, I didn't really see a lot of covers like this. And the fact that the the sort of response from it was overwhelmingly positive and overwhelmingly like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. This is different. This is fresh. This feels new. Let's do it. Everyone was so, so into it. And I think that for me, that kind of represented a lot about how people behind the scenes felt about the book in general. And just to have that support was really special. Yeah, I love the shot because, and for those of you who don't have dining in, you should go get it. <laughs> Stop but, what you're doing. <laughs> go get it right now. But we'll, I'll describe it briefly to you. It's it's a shot of food and people are eating the food. Like you can see the hands coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's an overhead shot. 
One of the things that I think makes it so unique is that it's an action shot, but typically on cookbook covers, if we see an action shot, it's the act of cooking mm-hmm. and not the act of eating. So it's that concept of coming around. It, it almost looks like every time I try to take a picture for Instagram <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, sorry, let me move my hand yeah, out of the like, way. I'm like, no, we, we want to see yeah. what's happening here. Yeah. So I love that aspect about it. We, d- we have a million outtakes because really yeah. what just happened was I plated these two dishes of food put all the stuff on the table and then the hand on the upper left corner is Amy Wilson who did the props. And then that's mine on the bottom, right? Okay. And we just started eating. Yeah. And they took all these pictures and it like the obsessiveness of me, like looking at three images next to each other that to the, to most people are the same image. But for me, I'm like, well, the olive in this picture is moved slightly and uh, right. my finger and this one, you know, being just so intensely scrutinous of, of it. And I think it's a great introduction to the feel of your cookbook, to your style of cooking, which I want to talk a bit about. So how do you describe your approach to cooking? I've seen you say that it's not lazy, it's lo-fi is maybe <laughs> one like descriptor. How do you yeah. like when someone comes up to you? One of my least favorite questions that people ask is like, oh, you like to cook? What do you cook? Oh my God, same. Please don't ever ask me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're like, no. well, do you like pasta? Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. What do you I feel like? Everything. I don't know. Because sometimes it's not what you think it is. Right. <laughs> um, I, I say unfussy, um, okay. which still juries out if that's an actual word or not. But to me, I think that we get so wrapped up in executing something that's supposed to be perfect and doing something that we think we're supposed to do or supposed to like that you stop to consider like, am I having fun? Does this taste good? Do I like this? Is this stressing me out more than it's bringing me joy? And you know, I think that with a cookbook, you should feel relaxed and you should feel empowered to change something if you want. And if this cookbook is telling you that you can only do it with this cut of meat, or you can only make this dish with this vegetable that you can't find in your town, then I don't think it's really doing you a service. And so I like to feel in my food and in my recipes and books that there's a more relaxed approach and also just inclusive. You know, not everybody has the same enthusiasm for cooking or the same time or the same kitchen space or the same ingredients or the same budget. And I really wanted to make something that everybody felt like they could participate in. Right. Now, one of my favorite chapters in Dining In, which I cook from often, is the savory breakfast chapter, especially Mm. the savory granola. Mm, Or actually, I think the title is Not So Sweet Granola. Decidedly not sweet. Decidedly not sweet granola. (laughs) Yeah. Which you recommend serving with Greek yogurt, cucumber, like smashed cucumbers and olive oil, which is one of my favorite breakfasts. I've seen a lot of commentary about the savory breakfast approach, mm-hmm. particularly around your book. Is that something that like you knew you wanted to include in the early stages of putting this book together? No, actually, it sort of evolved from a chapter called eggs. So okay. I had a, an egg chapter because I eat a lot of eggs or I did at the time. It's funny. I don't really eat eggs anymore. That's the inter- other interesting thing interesting. about writing cookbooks is that you evolve and, you know, in we'll get here. But in the first book in dining in, I say, I hate rice. And in the second book, I have a a recipe for rice and I have to kind of explain myself. But yeah, so it evolved from a chapter that was specifically about eggs. And I realized that it could have been that it could, that there really wasn't enough there to make a whole chapter. So I cut a few of those recipes, moved them to a different chapter and then bulked it up with other recipes for savory breakfast, just because um, at the time I was spending a lot of time at home and I wasn't leaving the house and I was making breakfast for myself often and realizing that they were only ever savory. Well, it's delicious. Yeah, I love that granola. <laughs> I think you're a model or an expert for some people in learning how to like build a brand around food mm. in today, today's world, today's yeah. social media world. Wild so, world. <laughs> yes. So I, I'm curious for your perspective, what role does social media play for you in like your day-to-day life? 
it plays an, a significant role in my life, obviously, but it changes every day, every week, okay. you know, in, in my approach to how I'm going to do something and to the approach on how I'm going to document something like, is it a professional account? Is it a personal account? Is it a business account? And trying to do it all and have it feel natural and a part of one another is challenging. So a few months ago, I hired an assistant who's been excellent. And she and I, I like I've kind of from nothing, we've sort of started to figure out how to include other people in my Instagram account. <laughs> wow, what a weird sentence. <laughs> um, but just the people that are cooking the recipes that I'm producing. Um, at the beginning, when the okay. book first came out, it was obviously really intense and it was too much to keep up with. And even since then, Instagram has come up with a a number of ways to encourage that kind of sharing of other people's content. But I was just screenshotting things, saving them to my phone. And then when I had a free moment, I would just repost them with my own captions. And when you say this, you mean people, not people, you know, like people out in the world who are cooking your recipes Mm -hmm. that just tag, Mm -hmm. tag me and stuff. And I don't know, at the time, I think it was the, I didn't see anyone else doing it. I feel like it was the, you know, it was at the time very new. And then now I feel like everybody does it, which is great. And I think it's, it's a really wonderful way to make other people feel included in your process. And honestly, I will only ever be successful if people cook from my recipes. I think encouraging them and like showing different results and, you know, 20 different people made this one dish and they all look different and they all look awesome is to me the best way to kind of show appreciation for people that appreciate my work, but also to encourage other people to cook it and be like, Oh, it doesn't have to look like this picture. It can look like anything and it's still awesome. And I think people get so hung up on like, it's got to look like what it looks like in the book or the picture or the magazine or whatever. And it doesn't, I think that, um, that's a really nice way to empower people to feel more comfortable with that. Yeah. I mean, to that effect, you're known for developing recipes that are really simple and accessible for home cooks Mm -hmm. and that home cooks find delicious and approachable. Do you have like particular advice that you often offer to home cooks? Like what's sort of your big tip or trick if someone walks up to you on the street and says... I've been cooking from your book. Tell me like your advice. Um, <laughs> well, I think it goes back to what I just said, which was like, are you having fun? Is this, is this stressing you out? Cause if so, like, let's figure out how or why we can make this fun again for you. Um, if you're feeling pressure to execute this recipe, but you're not like really feeling it, then try something else. Or, you know, like no one's going to tell you what your favorite dish is. No one's going to tell you what you have time for. No one, you know, what you like, what your preferences are. And you have to really kind of feel again, empowered to, change course and be like, you know what? She calls for cilantro. I don't like cilantro. So use parsley. Great. Awesome. It's going to be delicious. And I think that relaxing is, is really hard for people in the kitchen. For me, that's the number one place that I relax. Mm -hmm. So I think you're either that kind of person or you're not. And when you're not, but you still enjoy the process of cooking, it's, it's important to kind of remember yourself, remember to breathe and, (laughs) and remember why you're there. You're there because it's supposed to be fun and enjoyable and creative and, you're not looking at your phone. You're not reading the news. You're not at work. You're not dealing with something that's stressful. You're supposed to be just creating something nice and good for yourself and right. people that you like. Does that impact your recipe development process? Like, do you think about when you're developing recipes, what would the average home cook think? Or like, maybe people have a, you know, aversion to cilantro, scientific totally. or not. Like, does that factor <laughs> in? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think that that is, I'm always thinking about the reader. Whether I'm the reader, my mom's the reader, my best friend's the reader. I think that thinking about the person who's cooking your food is the most important thing when writing a cookbook because I would never ask you to do something that I won't do myself. And if I'm willing to do it, I also want to give you the option to not if I don't think it's that important. Or if I think that 
it will still be good without it. And I try to be upfront and say like, if you don't feel like doing this, then don't make this dish because it won't turn out as well. And I want to be honest, but I can also say, if you don't feel like buying this ingredient, this will still be good. And I know that to be true. And so I think there's a fine line between trying to push people out of their comfort zone and trying new ingredients and new techniques and also making them feel like they can still do something excellent if they're not comfortable with that or they can't find the ingredient or whatever. So you had a tweet that I loved recently oh. <laughs> that was also a funny sentence to say aloud. I know. About wanting to start a series oh my God. called like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that yeah. to different things in various recipes. Yeah. Was yeah. there something that prompted that? Um, yeah, there was. Okay. I, you don't have to call yeah, it out by name. I, I'm but. not going to call it out, but I feel like there's something that, that makes me think that almost every day uh-huh. with either I come across a blog post from somebody or an article or a this or a that or an Instagram post where I look at something and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm just not going to do that. And I feel like that's a really good test for a recipe. And, and a part of me feels like if I ever decide that I have no more creativity left in me and don't want to write cookbooks that I'm going to edit cookbooks because mm. I'm just going <laughs> to circle people's recipes and be like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yes. <laughs> and I, I really want people to ask themselves when they're writing a recipe, who's going to do this? Am I going to do this? Am I really asking you to do this? Is this worth doing? You know, I feel like there's so much pressure to create recipes that look a certain way, especially because, you know, social promotion of them is so important. And, you know, if you're not going to want to take a picture of it, you're not going to make it. And right. da, 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 da. But creating a recipe for social eyes is weird to me. Yeah. Because like I cook tons of food that's gorgeous and beautiful and nobody ever sees it because I don't take a picture of everything I eat or cook. Right. And like, that's okay. You know, I feel like reverse and en- I think food in- inherently is beautiful. And I don't think that you need to do something that has like a ta-da element to it just because, because yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> there, yeah. There's some beauty in like simplicity too, which I think people forget. Like one of my other favorite recipes of yours is the slow roasted salmon mm-hmm. um, in olive oil, mm-hmm. which is like, uh, not to say it's not a beautiful dish on its own, but it's very simple mm-hmm. and the presentation is very simple. And I think sometimes you're right that there's like an inclination to want something more and flashier and a little bit more like yeah. social friendly. Yeah. And that's probably the the second most popular recipe in the whole cookbook. And yeah. it's literally like three ingredients. It's right. fish oil and a piece of fruit. Fish comma oil, yeah. not fish oil. <laughs> Definitely not fish oil because gross. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, so, you know, I don't think that it need. you know, you don't need to like carve a herringbone shape into a thing to right. like I, I don't know it's right. like all you need is a really nice piece of fish and a really beautiful piece of citrus we'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Allison Roman author of Dining In if you're a regular listener of Salt and Spine you know all our episodes are recorded at the Civic Kitchen the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District the Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We, of course, love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their expert teachers. And you know personally that I love the wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine interviews. Now, don't miss upcoming classes in 2019, like the six-part Learn to Cook series or Winter Farmer's Market. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. And now back to our conversation with Allison Roman. Now we're talking about home cooks. One thing that I've read you love to do that many home cooks dislike doing is grocery <laughs> shopping. Oh, I love it. What do I do too. What do you love about <laughs> grocery shopping? Um, I love grocery shopping so much. I love to do it in every city, in every country. I just think you can tell a lot about a place by the food there. And yeah. the food starts with ingredients. You can go to a restaurant, but you're not really sure what the ingredients are always. And you go to a market and you're like, what is this? And like, 
you know, I remember the first time I went to Canada, I was like, you guys sell milk in bags? Like, that's <laughs> crazy. That, that tells me so much about Canada, you right. know? And just kind of the things that people stock. I was in Norway many years ago and I went to the grocery store and it was just mind was blown at how many types of fish and cured mm. fish and fish roe and salted fish and sure. like fish spreads and like <laughs> just crazy stuff that we would never have in our markets here. And so, I don't know, I think it's like a, like mini museums in a way. And for me as a recipe developer and cookbook author, I find it really important to know what people have access to. Now it's kind of like, okay, if you, if a Whole Foods in New York carries something, it doesn't always mean that a Whole Foods in California is going to carry something, but it's like a generally, okay, I've seen hominy at Whole Foods. So I know that that's available and I can write recipes to include that. So for me, it's also just research to kind of make sure that I know that if I'm calling for an ingredient, I can tell people where to find it. Yeah. We have to talk about the cookies Mm -hmm. briefly. Um, (laughs) Do you still make them? Um, Like, Do they wow you? Do do you have a desire Um, to eat? No, I don't. Okay, so I let's make, contextualize them, it. What I, are the cookies? Okay, so the first cookies of all, are familiar. a salted butter chocolate chunk shortbread. Yes. And it's the only cookie in the cookbook. And honestly, I had no idea they were going to become as popular as they did. I was like, oh, this is a pretty good cookie. I'm going to put it in the book. <laughs> and, it, and that's all I thought. I wasn't like, oh, this is the one. Um, zero idea. And it continues to gain momentum and popularity, I think, now because we are entering cookie season. Right. Um, so it is becoming, it's having a mini renaissance over the summer. I feel like people forgot about it, but now it's back. Right. Um, but it's good. It's really, it's a really simple shortbread recipe that I've amended to kind of become like what I think is a better version of a chocolate chip cookie. It's sort of like a shortbread and a chocolate chip cookie put together, mm-hmm. which is really nice. It's, it's tender and crunchy and crispy and salty. It is a very, very good cookie. And I, I do make it, but pretty much exclusively for like charity or yeah. events or like my best friend, one of my best friends in New York had a, like her son had a raffle to benefit the school. And she's like, I sort of signed you up to <laughs> donate two logs of cookie dough. And I was like, that's great. Yeah. And then we did a bake sale for families affected by the crisis at the border. And I okay. baked mm-hmm. off like 400 cookies for that. And so for events and like Planned Parenthood bake sales that happen yeah. in New York and things like that, I, I always bake the cookies for. But I have some friends that say, you know, I've still never had the cookies. And I'm like, oh my God, really? You should make them. <laughs> yeah. Because they, they, I'm like, are you going to, do you think that I'm going to be like, oh, I'll do that for you? Because I'm not. <laughs> no. Right. And and when we say the cookies, yeah. like we're saying capital T. Capital the T. Cookies. Yeah. Which I kind of started calling them as a joke. So and you then, invented the term? I think so. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I yeah. Mean, I was wondering the where the term stories, came from. Yeah. The receipts. I think I, I did it as sort of a joke and then it caught on and now it's like the cookies, Got which it. is really arrogant and funny for me to say, <laughs> but if somebody else says it, I'm flattered. Yeah. I mean, and they were viral to like an extreme <laughs> they extent. They were. Yeah. It got crazy. But like you there know, were, ba- there was backlash to the cookies. Oh, like there yeah. were articles written saying oh like these cookies are not good. Are I they, can do a better version. Even that good. Like right. I, does she even know what a shortbread <laughs> is? And I'm like, yeah. Oh honey, sit down. I uh, do know what a shortbread is. That's not what it's about. Right. You know? At one point, it was so viral, you hired an intern to help you with the content. I did. Right? Or was, is this the assistant you're talking she be- about? She was my intern. She became my assistant. Got it. Yeah, okay. But so. she started like exclusively to help you with the well, sheer amount it was of cookie, cookie content? content and other recipe content. Yeah. Okay. It would just become, it became something of a different beast. It became something like a full time job for me to stay on top of. There's enough content from other people that I could continue to do that at the same pace. But there's also just so much other stuff going on that I don't want to be one of those people that people mute because my content is so. Uh, too much and overwhelming and annoying. So I try to limit it and, and make it helpful and fun, but also like give people a breather. Right. 
how do you think of yourself in terms of baking? Like you've worked as a professional baker. I think a lot mm-hmm. of people obviously think about you and think of the cookies. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also developing so much more than just baking. Mm-hmm. I also read that you, uh, when you were a child, were like really obsessed with baking scones, specifically mm-hmm. scones. <laughs> yeah. From like a Martha Stewart recipe. And I don't know why. It's not like I ever had a good scone. I wasn't like, I'm going to recreate this great scone I had. Yeah. I just became obsessed with the idea of making a great scone. I feel that way about cheesesteak. I've never had a cheese great cheesesteak. Do you make cheesesteak? No, but no. in my, no, but in my head, I, I think about what the best cheesesteak I've ever had could taste like. Right. And one day I would, I want to make that. But it was sort of like that with the scones where like I'd never had this, but I, I thought that I want, I, like I knew what I wanted, which was a very tall and fluffy scone that was very crispy on the outside and very like soft and buttery on the inside. Yeah. Did you achieve it? Probably not. When I, was, I was this? Like, like how? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't. I don't know what I was doing. Interesting. I feel like cheesecakes aren't supposed to be excellent. I I know, but I feel like <laughs> I, it, I'll I'll draw one out for you later okay. I'll, off the air. Okay. We'll t- we'll talk about what my dream is, and I think that you'll agree that it sounds pretty good. Got it. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about cookbook influences. I've read um, that a couple of your favorite cookbooks are like the Chez Panisse Menu Cookbook from mm-hmm. Alice Waters. Brooks Heedley's Fancy Desserts is another of yours. Are there particular authors that have influenced you? you as you've now become a cookbook author and are working on future books that you just like, turn to for inspiration or that really impacted you in some way? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I've also been influenced by other food writers that didn't write cookbooks, um, uh-huh. like Judith Jones. Yeah. The Tenth Muse was like one of my favorite books. And the way that she writes about food and the food she cooks really inspired me to kind of figure out my my own voice in writing recipes and about food. But um, I tend to really favor British cookbook authors. Yeah. I feel like I mentioned Diana Henry in every interview I give. She's awesome. Um, she's We've probably annoyed her. of me talking about her. Yeah. But um, I feel like she's, when I first read her books, she was so confident and self-assured and unapologetic about her preferences and her opinions that I really related to that. And I was like, I want to, yes, I like that about her. And I, I really valued that. And it without it being like cheeky or too sweet or vanilla. She has like mm, a bit of an yeah. edge to her and that really comes across in her writing. And I, and I love that. Right. Yeah. You know, you've said the same thing about Alice Waters. Oh yeah. That she has an edge to her. Totally. Actually, I, I, my, I pulled a quote that from a recent interview you did where you said Alice Waters is a real bad bitch. <laughs> yeah, I did Naughty say that. and a little divisive. <laughs> yeah. Which was like, I read that and I'm like, that's really true. It is true. I, I maintain that. I think that uh, that is still valid. Um, and she, like uh, the books that I've read of hers that again, that are my favorites are the ones that have been published many years ago. Um, she just really struck me as a person who did not care about what other people thought. And I think that it is so challenging in this day and age, especially, which is like a, a phrase only my parents use, but, um, <laughs> it is so challenging these days to not care what other people think because you are constantly being inundated with other people and their opinions and their people feel empowered to give you their opinion about you, whether you ask for it or not. And you feel constantly judged whether you have like 200 Instagram followers or like a million or are famous or not. There's a pressure to, um, I don't know. There's just like social pressure to be something. And I don't know what that something is, but it is, it is affects everyone I know and every line of work. And I think especially in the food community and it is challenging and it's challenging to turn down that noise and to simply channel what it is that you love and care about and want to share with the world. How do you do that? Um, I am struggling to do that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, tr- I think being mindful of it is the first step for sure. And I think doing things like taking the time to do something 
unrelated to food is increasingly important to me. So, I mean, I go to yoga, I go to museums, I try to do things that have nothing to do with restaurants or cooking or food or anything. And, you know, spending time with people that aren't in that industry either. And just kind of reminding yourself that the world is very big because especially in the food world, it can feel extremely small and it can feel like everybody's on top of each other and that everybody's like fighting for attention and space. You have to just kind of take a breath and realize that there is a lot more out there than like that small universe. And I think that you're product, whatever it is that you do in whatever creative field is only bettered by a broadened perspective in other fields. Not to like immediately pull us back to food. Yeah, no, no, no. (laughs) I know you're working on some more cookbooks. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can preview what's next for Alice and Roman. What can your fans expect? Oh, the fans. (laughs) The fans. The fans Um, with the cookies. (laughs) um, Well, yes. So I have another cookbook coming out next fall. Okay. um, 2019, October 2019. And I think if you, if you like dining in, if you love dining in, then you will obviously really love the second book. It's not exactly the same. Um, There's the, the chapters are structured a bit differently. It's sort of geared more towards um, having people over. It's not menus and it's not entertaining. It's more just kind of a relaxed approach to cooking for other people um, in a way that to me feels like the way most people were using dining in. So I think mm. what, you know, the luxury and one of the advantages of something like Instagram is that as soon as the book came out and people were cooking from it, I was able to have direct contact with the people that were using it. And they had a lot of questions and they had a lot of you know, requests and sort of thoughts and the way that I saw people using it and responding to which types of recipes. And I was very thoughtful about taking that feedback and figuring out how to translate that into like the next evolution of, of dining in or like what my next collection of recipes would be and, and how I want people to use those. Sure. And then after that, there'll be two more books. Exciting. Yeah. Exciting. You're a great writer. Do you have other literary aspirations beyond cookbooks? I do. I do. I think that I, I do. And I think that I will, I would like to figure out how to use those aspirations best, but I definitely think that I've got something in me that is not cookbook related, but is food related or life related. But it's so funny because I could not write about my life without food being the, the focus. It's all I really ever done. My first job mm. was at Jamba Juice. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I think that it seems silly to say I'll write a memoir because I'm not, I don't think that I've done enough interesting things to warrant that. But my goal is to sort of live really interestingly for the next 20 years so that maybe I can write one. Yeah. That's <laughs> a great goal. So I want to end with a little game. We sometimes play little games. I love games. My friends okay, get awesome. so annoyed with me because I'm always trying to get them to play a game. Oh, okay. Well, I hope you like this I game. I love games. So... Other than the cookies, I've read and I know that one thing you get asked a lot about is lipstick Mm, mm -hmm. and your lipstick choices. Mm -hmm. And there's also an amazing story I love of this like picture of your mother after giving birth to you wearing (laughs) lipstick. Give us a glimpse of what that story is while I tee up the game. Yeah, she I was going through my childhood photo albums and there's a picture of my mom in like hospital gown and very clearly having just given birth wearing like this outrageous pink (laughs) lipstick. And my mom had this habit of taking taking all the photos in our photo album and making captions with stickers. Okay. And so she had like a thought bubble coming from this <laughs> picture. And it was like, of course I had time to put lipstick on. <laughs> and I was, you know, I remember the first time I saw it, I was probably like seven or eight and it always stuck with me. That's amazing. Yeah. So always I thought, have time for lipstick. It's yeah. really the moral here. Awesome. I thought we'd play a little game. I did some research into some of your mm. favorite lipsticks. Wow. I've got four of them. Great. I'm going to give them to you. <gasps> and then I want you to pair them with a dish. Oh, okay. It can be a dish from dining in. It can be a dish 
that you think on the spot. Okay, great. Whatever you want. Okay, awesome. So the first is a lipstick from Glossier Mm -hmm. that you recommend. I've seen you recommend in a lot of interviews Mm -hmm. called Generation G. Mm -hmm. So the color that we're working with here is called Cake. And for our listeners, cake is like described as a subtle peach color. Mm-hmm. So it's like a little orangey. Let's go with orangey, maybe. Yeah, when it goes like on, it's like lipstick. pretty sheer. It's yeah. like, it's like the, it's like a denim jean of lipstick. It's okay. like, it's like not fancy. It's not bold. Gives you like a little something. And okay. what do we, what food do we pair this with? Oh God. I would say like a really solid roast chicken. It's like okay. nothing flashy. It's nothing fancy, but it's, it's quite satisfying. Okay. Yeah. That's great. I love it. Lipstick number two. This mm-hmm. is um, the brand Sugar. Sugar mm-hmm. Spice. No, Spice is the color. Sorry. Spice Look, I'm, color, botch- yeah. I'm botching this already. Sugar. It's a. You recommend it often because it has an SPF built in. Mm-hmm. SPF 15. So the color we're going with is called Spice. And it's like an earthy brown lipstick Oh, I've never color. worn that. Well, maybe you should check it out. <laughs> I don't know. But now sh- but now sugar, I'm the lipstick yeah, recommender. But sugar is great as a brand because they like this particular thing. It's from Fresh, which is the brand and sugar is oh, like, okay. it's like a chapstick lipstick thing. It's even lighter than the Glossier one. Okay. Um, so it's even more lo-fi, if you will, but it's okay. also utilitarian. Like it serves a purpose. It has super moisturizing and it's got SPF. So That's if I great. pick a food that goes with that, I'm And the say, flavor is spice. I mean, I think visually and and verbally, I'm going to say that that's going to be the decidedly not so sweet granola. Okay, yeah, it's a, it's a morning yeah. lipstick, like an all day. Yeah, lipstick. it's not a it's not um, savory. It's a little sweet. It's lightly spiced. Okay, it's utilitarian. It goes with everything. You yeah, make a big batch. Awesome. Yeah. Number three. Mm-hmm. These are great so far. This is from Sephora Cream Lip Stain mm. Lipstick, and I'm wearing I'm, it right now. Okay, there mm-hmm. we go. And we're going with the color called Chili Pepper. Mm. There you go. And it's like a very bright red for mm-hmm. our listeners. Just yeah. like the reddest red you could find. Yeah. What do we pair this with? We pair that one with the anchovy tomato bucatini from Dining oh, In. Delicious. Because I think that I'm not only wearing it in that photo in the book, but to me, like that type of lipstick is great because it stays on no matter what. And when you're eating a giant bowl of pasta, it's just like all over your plate, all over the place. And you want that lipstick to stay put, but also the color matches the tomato sauce. So mm. I feel like it's like kind of cute. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Final one. This is th- now we're going fancy. This is a Chanel lipstick mm-hmm. that I've seen you recommend yes. in some interviews called Rouge Coco. Maybe mm-hmm. am I getting that right? Do we have any yeah, idea? It's I like Allure Rouge. <laughs> okay. Something, something fancy. Yeah. And the color that I chose is called Eric. It's a deep purple. Oh, Eric. Um, almost eggplant-esque. Like, <laughs> Eric with a K is oh the name God. of the Eric color. Eric with a K. E-R-I-K. Eric with a K. Run away is what I say. Yeah. Like if you mean someone, Eric. <laughs> just kidding. All Eric's with a K. I mean, so very purpley, very like eggplant. Yeah. I mean, I feel like quite you. literally, I'm gonna go with like a roasted eggplant dish. Okay. I feel like there's a few that you could riff off of in the dining and cookbook, but to me, like a really soft and tender, halved, grilled or roasted eggplant would be great. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And it seems like eggplant on eggplant. Eat it with your friend Eric. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, this was so fun. Thank you so much, Allison. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Dining In the slow salmon with citrus and herb salad 
and one of my favorites, the decidedly not sweet granola. Now remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And of course, we always love if you rate and review us. Our program today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks as always to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. And a special thanks as we wrap up our first year to our 30-plus incredible cookbook author guests for joining us to talk cookbooks, and most importantly to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in and supporting Salt and Spine. And don't go anywhere. We'll be back in 2019 with many more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.